right, yes, please remain standing. Our scripture is from Genesis chapter 1 and parts of chapter 2. We began chapter 1 at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Then Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, or 4 through 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And verses 18 and onward. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to, brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. So, again, we have been in a series that we've been calling The Reason Why, and we have used that to, to see the reason why the, the world exists, because of Genesis 1-1, God created everything. Uh, he is the one who has no beginning. Uh, we saw the Spirit is the one who assures us that we will finish. Uh, if, if He has started with us, we will finish. Last week, we saw that the reason why anything exists is because the Word of God stands behind all creation. This week, we turn to the creation of man 
And we ask, I think, one of the most pressing questions of our age, probably of all ages, but there is a, a great gravity to grasping what the Word tells us about the nature of humankind for this time and this place. We will find out today the reason why you, all of you, humankind, have dignity and worth and preciousness no matter what. We are going to find the reason why humankind is what it is and is special and deserves protection and respect simply on the basis that we are human. The reason why you have dignity, that is a question that the world in the last 150 years is grasping to try and, 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 and secure. We have lost a serious foundation when our understanding of what gives human life dignity is stripped from this sacred text. Because apart from this text and the knowledge that God has made all humanity in his image, the reason that you have dignity is now on shaky ground and is undermined by all sorts of means. Each of us individually must appropriate this truth for this very reason. You struggle day to day to feel worthy, to feel like you have dignity, to feel like you matter. And why is that? It is because the world constantly wants you to find your meaning and purpose and value and reason for existence in your job, in your friends, in your marriages, in any number of things, calling you away from what Scripture says is the most foundational truth. You are in the image of God, full stop. That is your dignity. That is your worth. Do you struggle with dignity and worth? Do you struggle with a sense that you mean something? We must grasp this text. Do you champion this truth? in the relationships that you have in this world, in your presence on Facebook, in your conduct in the workplace, in the people that you talk to and what you say about other people. Because as this truth is being eroded, the only people that are going to present this and redeem this and make this true again is us. And it comes not just in saying we believe it. It comes in living it out, in applying it in every person. Not just the ones we're aligned with, not just the ones we agree with, not just the ones that make us safe and comfortable. 
There is a challenge in this text upon every single one of us to live out the good news by living out and loving and recognizing the image of God, the fundamental dignity of every human being, even if they're your enemy. This text today is going to tell us what does it mean to be made in God's image. And we're going to look at that answer in four headings. The first, what does it mean to be made in God's image is this. We are unique. We are unique. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 comes in the sixth day of creation. God had just finished making all the land animals, the ones that creep on the ground, the the domesticated ones, the undomesticated ones. And if, if you were to say, is anything left to do based on what was said were the conditions of creation in verse 2? It was formless and empty. Was there anything else that needed to be done after the, the, the filling of the land with, with animals? You would say at a certain logical level, no. The creation is no longer formless. It is no longer empty. And that is why verse 26 comes as a surprise. It comes as a pinnacle. It comes as, as kind of this apex of delight in God where even though the creation is filled, he says, let us make man. And so the creation of man represents the pinnacle. And by the way, when I say man, I'm meaning human. Just Falling back on the traditional language, the creation of man is shown to us as the pinnacle. We see that the text builds to it. It it, it goes from uh, uncomplex to more complex, and then it builds to this, the last event. We see that it is a special creative act that is separate from everything else that was made on day six. Mankind is another act of creation. Look at verse 26. Then God said. Mankind has its own creation fiat, its own command to bring into existence. So though mankind belongs with animal kind and both being created on the sixth day, It is very clearly separated from animal kind in that it was created specially and distinctly by its own command. You understand? Third, we see that it is a pinnacle because it has this extra beat of reflection that shows that the decision to make man was this special act within the Trinity And we see it in these words, let us make man. It's like God steps back and he says, we're going to go even higher. We're going to do something truly amazing. I have 
the real masterpiece next. And so they have this dialogue that is excited, that is, that is full of, of anticipation. What is God going to make now? He is going to make man. And how is he going to make man? He's going to make it in our image. Which is to say, there is nothing in creation that I want this creation to be compared with. I am going to make it a pattern after the most supreme and beautiful thing that exists myself. I am going to make it in the pattern of me. It is going to be in my image, in our image, in the image of God. What that the very best could be called the image of God, the Imago Dei. This is to tell us that mankind is the masterpiece. Mankind is the, is the ninth symphony. In, uh, in classical music, everybody lives under the shadow of Beethoven. He wrote nine symphonies. The Ninth Symphony is his last one and considered his supreme, the best. Once it was written, he was done with symphonies. And every composer after Beethoven has responded to the Ninth Symphony as the magnum opus. Gustav Mahler, perhaps the, the next best composer in the world, he got eight symphonies written. And he became terrified because now he has to write his ninth. The ninth, the masterpiece. And so Mahler actually wrote a symphony but didn't call it a symphony because he needed a second try. So his ninth symphony is his tenth symphony. But that's the masterpiece. It's the last creative act and that is what God has done. There is nothing that comes after this creative act. It is the image of God. It's his masterpiece. God puts down his utensils and says, finished. What is the image? What is the likeness? Some have, have looked at the words image and likeness and and, and, and uh, pursued separate paths if they mean different things. But I think if we, if we look at how the, the syntax is set up, the word likeness uh, is, is basically a gloss on the word image. They are meant to, to kind of say the same thing twice. I think that is supported when you get down to verse 27 because the word likeness is not involved, but we are told that God is created in his own image, in the image of God. And so I don't believe that the image of God or the likeness of God is something different. I believe it is interchangeable language. But what is the image? What is the likeness? Basically, it represents God. The image of God is in some way or another imbued to resemble God, to be a portrait of God. And so people have wondered, well, what, what is the image? Is it, 
Is it uh, the fact that mankind has reason uh, or personality or soul or will or, or something like that? Is it, is it these individual attributes that make up the image of God? And I think that all of those have merit, but I don't think any single one of those can be isolated. When we are told that we are made in the image of God, I believe that the image of God includes the wholeness of mankind. It includes all of those things. It probably also includes the physical body. Not that God has a body, but that in some way or another, God is reflecting himself in a translated sense through the form of mankind. But we also must know that the image of God does not mean an exact or complete copy. When God says he is making us in the image of God, he doesn't say that he put himself on the Xerox machine or the 3D printer and popped out another one of himself. No, the image of God is something that resembles, that is analogous to God, but not identical to God. There is a, an overlap in the personhood of, of, of humanity and God, but mankind does not have God's uh, omnipresence or omniscience or self-existence. So we have to say that in some way it is an analogy. Here is how the Reformation Study Bible, uh, edited by R.C. Sproul, for those who, who like name drops, uh, describes the image of God. Being made in the image of God is usually understood to point to the sense in which we are like God. Though he is the creator and we are creatures, and though God transcends us in being, power, and glory, nevertheless, there is some sense in which we are like him. There is some analogy between God and us. God is an intelligent and moral being. We are also moral agents equipped with a mind, a heart, and a will. These faculties make it possible for us to mirror God's holiness, which was our original vocation. The next thing we must know about what is the image is that whatever the image is, it was not lost in the fall. It was not lost by sin. It was corrupted. It was scarred and, and uh, abused. But we know that it was not lost because if you turn to Genesis chapter 9, which is the account after the flood, after the fall, God speaks to Noah in 9.6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So this image of God is not something that has been lost entirely by sin. And so we must make this clear. The image of God is real. The image of God makes mankind a different order than animal kind. Often we are, we are bombarded with this statistic that mankind is 98% identical in their DNA to a chimpanzee. I have no reason or no ability to argue against that fact except to say this. I see more than 2% difference between a chimpanzee and a human being. 
And so there is something more than DNA that makes mankind mankind. The image of God is not DNA. The image of God is something gifted to us in our creation. We must recognize that there is some gulf between ourselves and animal kind. Second, we must recognize that it's the image of God that makes us human. It is the image of God that makes us human. Down at verse 27, make, us, make them in our image, male and female in our image. Mankind is in the image of God, and that includes all males and all females. There is not a derivative version. They are both equally created in the image of God. Next, we must recognize that when it comes to humanity, there are no kinds. Look up at verse 24. Verse 24, when God creates animals, he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. When it comes to the creation of man, there is no according to their kinds. There is one humanity. It's not located in the color of your skin. It's not located in the origin of your country. There is one humanity. There are not kinds. That is so important. About five years ago, I got to go on a trip to Israel. And I got to see all the holy lands, all the cathedrals and sanctuaries and buildings and places where this and that happened. And it's, it's affecting to see all of that. But if I were to tell you the three hours of my visit to Israel that has most affected me. It would be my visit to the Yad Vashem Museum. The Yad Vashem Museum is the museum of the Holocaust. And so you go into this building and you're just taken from room to room to kind of see what happened at each stage of the Holocaust. You, you come to a room that's just a pile of shoes. You make the conclusion. Those shoes were Jews that were destroyed. And you go from room to room to room and you see all of this. And the question that that comes upon you is, how did it happen? Because here's the really disturbing thing. The Germans, highly educated. Unbelievable culture. Like us in every possible way. A Christian nation. And they did this. The most disturbing place that I went to was a, in, a, in a cave full of mirrors and there were candles and all of these candle lights were reflected an infinite number of times into little bitty lights. 
And then you read this inscription. Every single light that you see, and there were more than you could count, stood for 20 children that were killed in the Holocaust. One and a half million children were murdered in the Holocaust. How did it happen? What explains this? It it should bother us because we are not different human-wise than the Germans. And yet it happened. Let me read a, a fairly extended quote from Dan McMillan, who wrote about five years ago a book called How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. He writes, Right-wing social Darwinism produced several ideas that were attractive and convenient to the ruling classes of Europe and North America, and especially to Germany's warlike and anti-democratic elites. The most important idea may have been struggle, the notion that all relations between individuals and between nations were determined by a merciless battle for survival. Struggle followed inevitably from the laws of nature as discovered by Darwin and therefore had no moral significance. The Christian injunctions to love your neighbor and love your enemies had no place in the animal kingdom Neither should they control the behavior of human beings who were not made in the image of God, but rather counted as nothing more than a specially clever type of animal. You see what happens when you step away from the Imago Dei. It was because Jews were not as superior as us, because they were a different race than us, and because the idea of the survival of the fittest must apply to every chapter of life, that races were looked at as different animals. When we lose the Imago Dei, we fall into the question who is my neighbor? It's only those who are really like me. This week, many of you have been disturbed by abortion legislation in New York. It reminds us on the uh, anniversary of Roe v. Wade, 61 million unborn children have died to abortion in this country. The number is vastly larger worldwide. That is what an educated Christian nation of people like us are doing right now. You recognize 61 million means that the museum of the Yad Vashem would have to be 41 times larger to represent the life, the imago days that we have killed in this country. And why do we do it? Because we deny that they are persons. We call them embryos. We call them fetuses. We call them everything but humans. 
And they are humans. They have DNA just like you. They have the Imago Dei just like you. The New York law tells us that the abortion issue is not going to be solved by the courts. It's going to go back down into the states. And that means something very important. The battle over abortion is now, will be, and really always has been a battle of the heart. We don't win this by the judges. We must win this by cherishing and championing the Imago Dei in every person, everywhere, from before they are born to the day of their death. That is where the battle is. Dehumanization is a wicked evil. When we deny humanity to someone, we are denying the responsibility to love. And we treat that person like an animal. So my question, are you treasuring the Imago Dei in others? In all others? In the elderly? the infirm, in the unborn, in the poor, in the black and white community, in conservatives and liberals, in those who identify as straight, and in those who identify as gay. In immigrants, legal and illegal. In Muslims, in humankind. Do you treasure and respect and give dignity to the image of God everywhere and to everyone? That is the first place we have to get to if we are going to champion the Imago Dei in this world. That doesn't mean that there aren't places where we have disagreements, but our disagreements and our appeals to know the truth should never run on the rails of dehumanization. Does that make sense? Can we all say amen to that? We are humankind. We are precious with inherent dignity because we share the Imago Dei. James chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
Do you see the fundamental contradiction when we attack people and dehumanize people with our words? We cannot come to worship and say, praise God, when we have ripped and shredded the image of God in all the people we disagree with. This is relevant. This is relevant. Second, we are God's representatives. We are God's representatives. When we see the words, uh, we are to subdue and have dominion over all creation, we recognize that being made in the image of God makes us God's representatives. We, we have the role of king over creation. All that has been created underneath us, we are responsible for. We see this in the fact that God hands off all these different things that he patterned for us. He gives us the responsibility to name. He plants the Garden of Eden, and then he gives us the responsibility to garden. He sets up a six-day work pattern and a day of rest, and then he gives that to us to follow in, in his stead. He has given us the privilege of being vice regents. He has said, I have made all this beautiful creation that I call very good, and I am going to put you as my representative over all of it. I mean, the privilege that we have. Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heavens, this is just us as a person, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man? that you were mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. He made the stars and the planets with his fingers, metaphorically. And yet he is regarding us, what is man? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We represent God in our work. Our work, our mundane work, the stuff that you do on Monday, email, all of it, God has invested it with part of that dominion mandate. It's part of God doing his work of caring for his creation. That's why you work. You work because God gave you work as his vice regent. Your work has dignity. As mundane, as minutiae as it may seem, it is part of taking care of creation. Your work is witness. You are the Imago Dei wherever you are doing work. And whatever you are doing is witnessing, not to, I'm here for a paycheck, but I am here because God has given me the privilege of being a vice regent in this world, and this is part of it. And so... Work is worship. It's not what you like about your boss or don't like about your boss. It's the fact that the Lord watches you being the Imago Dei, and as you reflect him, he is glorified. 
What a different perspective to Monday. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Be fruitful and multiply means to fill the earth with the Imago Dei. That's what children are, new Imago Days. And as we fill the world with the the Imago Dei, we are to be filling the world with his holy rule, his goodness, his reflection, his love. And as Psalm 8 says, his majestic name should be praised across all the earth. That's if it's working. That's if it's working. That's why we read the catechism question today. How and why did God create us? Answer, God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. But has this happened? Has this happened? As we, as we consider our own heart towards work, as we consider the world that we live in, what we were created to be, representatives, we must say this, in fact, reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. Because what do we reflect back? What do we reflect back? We are representatives of sin. We are sinners. Sin is not, did I do this or that? Sin is defined here as insubordination. We are to be reflecting his glory. We are defying his authority when we sin. We are are stealing his glory, giving it instead to our own pursuits. Sin is not about the particular act. It's the assumption that what should really be the primary concern in this moment, in this decision, is me and giving me what I want. And so in every sin, we are a pirate taking a ship away from the homeland saying, I own this land. It is mutiny. And I'm not speaking new concepts. That's why we're so full of shame. How do I know we're all full of shame? I notice everyone wearing clothes today. Before we committed a sin, we were naked and unashamed. Shame is so much our nature that we would not possibly show up naked anywhere. We are covering ourselves because we have been guilty. We are defaced masterpieces and our clothes are trying to hide what is so clear that we have pursued our own glory instead of his and that we are insubordinate. It gets worse. (laughs) I mean, it's good, but you know. Third, we have souls. When we recognize the image of God, we are unique. We are God's representatives. And third, we are souls, or we have souls. 
Look at Genesis 2.7. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Genesis 2 expands the narrative of day 6. We know that because Genesis 2 deals with the creation of man and the creation of woman. Day 6 ends with all things were very good, but in the middle of Genesis 2, God looks at man and says, it is not good that he is alone, which means for us to harmonize these two accounts, we are going back into day 6 in Genesis 2, and it's not until woman is created at the end of Genesis 2 that we end up back at Genesis 131. Does that make sense? I know it was very quick, but that's, that's all I want to say about that right now. We are made from dust. We are earthy. That makes us very humble. But at the same time, we are made alive with the breath of God. We have become a living creature because, as the text says, God breathed into us. And we became a living creature. That parallel is not made for how animals were made a living creature. We alone are told that we have been given the breath of God. And so as Matthew says in his commentary, animal life is attributed to an intermediary ground, but the man's fountain of life was the divine breath. The correspondence between man and his maker is expressed both by the language of image and by the metaphor of a shared breath. Here's what this means. If you are alive, you have a soul. Are you alive? You have a soul. You have a soul. Life is a scientific mystery. There is no answer in a scientific textbook about where life came from. But if you are alive, you have a soul. And this is what you must know. Your soul has infinite worth. Jesus, in some of the most sobering words in the Gospel of Mark, says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Here's Jesus' economy. If the whole world could be given to you, it would not be a reasonable exchange for one of your souls. In God's eye, your soul is more precious than everything else. Your soul is your life. And it is of infinite worth. As, as Scripture develops, we discover that because we are souled creatures, we have eternal life with us. The soul does not die. And so when we recognize that in Imago Dei we have souls, my question is, how is your soul? How is your soul? If you died tonight... Do you know where your soul would go? Would your soul go to be with the Lord? Or would your soul go to be apart from the Lord? 
That is the significance of knowing in Genesis 2 that we have souls. Jesus answers this question, what will happen to your soul in Matthew 10.32? Everyone who acknowledges me before men knows him, confesses him, lives for him. That's acknowledge. I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men doesn't live for him, doesn't make his life about him, doesn't trust in him. That's what denying means. I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Your soul hangs on the question, who is Jesus to you? It is of infinite worth and it is therefore of infinite importance that you know your soul is with Christ. Fourth, we are made for relationship. Going to 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we get the story of the creation of woman. We have seen that we are unique in the image of God. We are God's representatives as the image of God. We have souls as the image of God. Now finally we see that we are made for relationship because of the image of God. Because we are in the image of God, we know God. The first person, the first entity that is spoken to in creation the only thing that is spoken to in creation is man. God says in man to man, uh, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. We hear the word of God. That is a privilege. More, God has created us for relationships. That is why he, he made woman, because it is not good for man to be alone. I'd like to say more about that but we must move on for the sake of time. The Imago Dei, because we have the Imago Dei, we have the ability for relationship with God. And it is because of that that the Imago Dei that we have sinned against and that we have corrupted and that we have made ourselves separate from God is not the last word. Because the Imago Dei is how God saves us and makes us new. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, because we bear the Imago Dei, God was able to send his son to take on the Imago Dei, to live the righteous, perfect, uncorrupted life of the Imago Dei, and then take himself and put himself in the place of all the sins that have been committed by us in the Imago Dei. This is what the gospel is. The Imago Dei that has been lost in you has been taken on by Christ, made perfect, sanctified, and now by the gospel is given to you by faith. 
This is not a transaction. This came from Christ who came as a husband for his own. He came as a lover of your souls. That is the relationship. Christ came down to live righteously and take your sin. And in doing that, he says as a husband to a wife, I do to you meaning I will most certainly cleanse you, purify you, sanctify you, and bring you back into the glorious image that God created you to be. And if you want that gospel, if you want the Imago Dei in you to truly shine, you say, I do, in faith, back to him. And when we say those words, we become the bride of Christ And what happens to us? Christ makes you unashamed. He makes you holy. He makes you reflectors of God's glory. He makes you his masterpiece. That is, the Imago Dei brought alive in you. So I leave with this question. Do you know the husband of your soul? Do you know the one who will restore the Imago Day? Have you said, I do, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ?